Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 12th, 2022. Uh, just a little over a week uh, after July the 4th, Independence Day, the day where America celebrates its independence, where it celebrates perhaps the idea or the ideal of the American dream, the notion that all Americans are free to dream, to realize themselves. Today, we're going to be talking about dreaming, but perhaps in a more realistic way than it's sometimes presented. Uh, my two guests today, Karen A. Cerullo and Janet M. Ruan, are authors of Dreams of a Lifetime, How Who We Are Shapes How We Imagine Our Future. It's a book which, in a sense, deconstructs the idea of dreaming. Uh, let's begin, both our academics, let's begin um, with Karen, Karen Cerullo. Uh, Karen, uh, is your book in the business of deconstructing dreams, of suggesting that even as dreamers, Americans are unequal in terms of what they want and how they imagine themselves? I think that's what our study shows, that we have this, I don't know, bifurcated way of thinking about dreaming. Either people think that everyone subscribes to the traditional American dream, or on the other end of the scale, people believe that everyone's dreams, everyone's dreams are unique. And what we've shown is that things fall somewhere in the middle of that uh, span, that there is some patterning to dreams, but people are not necessarily all subscribing to the American dream. And there's a fair amount of overlap in the kind of things people dream about. But most importantly, how people's selections of dream themes and the structure of those dreams differs by where they're standing in social place, meaning their social class, their race, their gender, the events in their lives and so forth. Let's bring, um, let's bring your co-author, uh, Janet uh, M. Ruan in. Janet, talk to me a little bit about the research you did for this. Did you talk to people about their dreams? Are you the contemporary version of Freud in terms of sitting down with people, putting them on the couch and asking them what they dream about? No couches, but we did sit around um, tables and we talked with over 270 uh, individuals. We, we uh, approached students in schools, we went to churches, we went to civic groups, community groups. We intentionally sought out a diversity of folks thinking that whether you were ill or whether you were displaced by a natural disaster, that things like that might well affect your dreams. So we were working very hard to make sure we got a nice variety of individuals. And then we asked them the same set of questions so that we could standardize. We asked them about the content of their dreams. We asked them about how long they held their dreams. We asked them about how realistic they thought their dreams were. Did they have the talents, the skill sets to be able to achieve what it was that they were listing as their dreams? Um, so we, we did uh, spend quite a few 
uh, months gathering as much data as we could. We, we actually, in reviewing the literature, discovered that people really hadn't done this kind of research to, to uh, get people talking about their personal dreams. And so we fascinating. Uh, you, you're also the co-authors of a book, Second Thoughts, Sociology Challenges Conventional Wisdom. And that's exactly, I think, what you're doing here. What, um, what Janet, were the most uh, prominent, most memorable uh, lessons you drew from Dreams of a Lifetime? Are people's dreams a reflection of their class, of their gender, of their age, of their race, of their geography? What most came out? Well, I think you've you've hit on the big, uh, the big, uh, relevant issues there. But I think the most striking thing for us was that yes, we're we are reflecting our personal experiences, or they get reflected in our dreams. But we were fairly uh, amazed at how we could categorize people's dreams in a relatively finite, limited set of categories. And again, just to for the, for the listeners, viewers, people talked about adventure dreams, career dreams, fame, wealth, and power dreams, family dreams, philanthropy dreams, and dreams of self-improvement. And, and uh, that pretty much covered the full gamut of people's dreams. That not surprised us um, that, that we could talk in such finite categories. And then the other thing, of course, that we found most, most surprising, but perhaps not too much since we are sociologists, yeah, your social locations your gender, your class, your race, your age. Yes, it influences the, uh, the theme of your dreams, the scope of your dreams, the assessment of whether or not your dreams will come true. It's just, it's just quite, quite uh, consistent. Let's go back to Karen. Karen, um, how do people dream? I mean, did you discover that? Is it daydreaming? Do people write down their dreams? Did you have to dig into them? Or, or, or are most people's dreams about themselves? Um, are they on the surface? Was, were they easy to dig up for you as sociologists, as people investigating uh, the people you interview? Yeah, I think uh, I was very surprised at how quickly people were able to come up with their dreams and describe them in great detail. You know, we did some of these um, discussions in small groups with six or seven people, and some were done one on one. Um, and we asked people to write down, you know, we posed a simple question to people. If you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do or where would you go or what would you want to be or what would you want to have? And people had no trouble giving us three things that they had dreamed about as part of their future. And uh, they were able to describe them and discuss those things with us with a great deal of facility. Uh, this was not something where we had to do a lot of digging. Um, people were not only uh, at ease um, offering these dreams, but were excited to talk about them because we felt that these dreams were um, not necessarily things that people were making plans to accomplish. Some were, but many weren't. Many were fantasies, daydreams, 
almost as if people were writing scripts in their mind about places to go when they wanted to sort of feel happy about themselves, feel good about themselves, and kind of capture who they were and what was really important to them. So in a sense, Karen, what you did in these conversations is get people to tell ideal stories about themselves. Uh, how often did these people, your interviewees, did they recognize that these dreams weren't reality? And did that disturb them? Did they say at the end, well, I'd love to do this or that, go here or there, become this or that person, but of course I can't. Well, you know, again, it varied. Many people felt that these were things they might never be able to accomplish, but they still felt it was critical that they continue to dream. They felt that was so important. On the other hand, there were some groups. For us, it turned out to be people who were in the lower economic classes, people who were of Latinx background, people who we spoke with who were currently unemployed, who were willing to offer dreams, but did feel that the chances they would accomplish them were negligible. And there was a sort of um, a negativity about that a negativity on the world, um, that uh, something that they was important to them, they felt the reality of the world was gonna make it impossible for them to accomplish. Uh, Karen, um, you mentioned uh, people of Hispanic background. So often in our show, we've talked about the black-white the black -white divide in America. Did that come out as well in your study, in your Dreams of a Lifetime book, in your conversations that uh, black people and white people in America dream differently? Well, there's certainly um, uh, some differences, but, you know, we were finding that black people, having been in the country many, many generations, often dreamed very similarly to white people. And while they may not have been quite as positive about their abilities to accomplish their dreams because of the social problems and prejudices in a society, um, they still were much more alike when compared to whites than were uh, people of uh, Latin background. Let's come back um, uh, to, uh, to Janet. Janet, what about the age uh, issue? Do, did you find, uh, I don't know, the spread of the, the age of the people you talked to, but did you find that as people grew older, they, they dreamed more, perhaps, pessimistically? Were young, are young people more vivid dreamers or not? No. I mean, again, we were surprised by a, a, many of our findings. The, we started with third graders. And yes, third graders were uh, <laughs> sort of off the charts. They were the ones who would give us fantastical dreams. And uh, they, they were thrilled to be able to say that their dreams were to uh, own the Eiffel Tower or to levitate or to, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, Go to Mars. Go to Mars. Right. And, and, and what we discovered is that in fourth grade, there was a discernible change. Fourth graders got realistic about dreaming. Fourth graders started to talk about one of the most popular categories across all social locations, careers. 
Uh, we, we saw this, unfortunately, in the recent tragedy in Texas, where we learned that those fourth graders, those kids were already thinking about their futures as attorneys or as marine biologists. Well, we, we saw that. High schoolers, college students definitely were uh, tuned into careers. But uh, as we moved on, uh, as we got in, talked to respondents in their 30s and early 40s, family emerged as a, uh, a dream that now outdistanced for the first time in double digits the other categories. But by the late 50s, our respondents were saying no to family, they were done parenting, and they were now ready to be more expansive and adventuresome in stating their dreams. We had one woman tell us that she hoped to be able to travel across country with her daughters on motorcycles, that, that this is what she envisioned. Thelma and, and Louise. was very, very certain she was going to be able to pull it off. Um, the, actually, the po people who seemed to be most joyous about dreaming were the senior citizens. And they would be the ones who'd come back and say, yeah, I, I guess I don't have much time now. I got to do it now or it's never. But but you never know. We might be able to do it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, Janet, do you think that the, the reason why senior citizens were, shall we say, better dreamers, more creative dreamers or happier dreamers was because they're more realistic dreamers? It. It certainly, I think, has to be considered that having the lifetime of experiences behind them, they they knew that perhaps some of the dreams were uh, like like uh, going down the uh, Grand Canyon or bicycling across the United States. I mean, those folks said, look at the, the physical limitations are there and it's not going to happen. But that didn't replace their enthusiasm for dreaming and the importance of it. it. They're telling us it's essential to living, to have dreams in front of you. Speaking of living, uh, what about death? Did some of them dream of defying death, especially the older people? Oh, I'll tell you, again, another shocking finding. Who were the most optimistic dreamers? It was our health challenged individuals, the, the folks we talked to who were cancer patients. Uh, these individuals were the most confident of all of the groups we talked to that they were going to achieve their dreams. It's like their health challenge gave them a new uh, vigor about pursuing their dreams. Many of their dreams were philanthropic and they were very much tuned into helping folks who needed help like themselves, but absolutely committed to it. And as I said, they were the one single group category that absolutely was confident that they were going to achieve what they identified as their dreams. Let's bring Karen back in. Karen uh, Cirillo, one of the co-authors of Dream of a Lifetime. Karen, don't need me to tell you that both you and uh, Janet, a female, was there a big difference between the way in which men and women dream? Yes, we thought there was a, a very significant difference. It's true that most men and women alike tended to think about career or phil philanthropy. But once we got past those two themes, we found 
uh, difference that was consistent with sort of stereotypes of gender. Women were much more likely to dream about family, either having a family, uh, bringing it back a family that maybe wasn't getting along. Um, and they were also very likely to think about self-improvement, mostly in terms of the way they looked. Now, when you looked at men, we were more likely to see dreams about adventures, whitewater rafting, sailing around the world, uh, those kinds of things, and achieving a great deal of fame and power. Very common. And again, sort of fitting the stereotype of maleness versus femaleness. Yes, and money as well. So about sex, Karen, I assume that that came up. Surprisingly, there were not Maybe a lot of people. Maybe people were a bit shy around you. It may have been that people were a bit shy, but uh, that was not something that people uh, readily offered as uh, something they dreamed of for the future, something they wanted to have happen in the future. Some people did, you know, dream about finding a, a lifetime mate uh, or having a happy relationship, but sex in and of itself did not come up. Let's um, let, let, let's bring uh, your your co-author back in, um, Janet M. Ruan. Uh, Janet, you're a sociologist. Both of you are sociologists by training. Of course, Freud told us that everything about dream life is about sex, and I don't think many people agree with that now. What um, what did this project teach you about? Um, the traditions of sociology? Did it prove Marx or Weber or Freud or Tocqueville? What, what did you professionally learn from this book? Well, I, I think um, it's the importance of our social statuses, a, a very basic, simple concept that uh, some people debate whether or not we should be talking about statuses and roles as much as we, we have in the past in sociology. And it just reaffirmed in my mind that your social positions and the expectations that are, are heaped upon those social locations uh, ring loud and true, even to the point of influencing what you dare to dream. Uh, so, you know, I... I'm a, I'm a student of Donald Black, a, a relatively new theorist about how your social locations simply influence all of our social action. And so I felt uh, some uh, confirmation in my years of teaching that I continued to uh, stress people's, uh, what I call their social addresses and how they are so influential in how we uh, carry out our life activities. Karen, what about you, another sociologist? As I said, you're both co-authors of Second Thoughts, Sociology Challenges Conventional Wisdom. Uh, what did you learn as a sociologist from this study? Well, I think what I learned is that we, we typically think about dreams and fantasies about the future as something that's very personalized. And I was expecting to hear a lot of variety in the answers uh, of people that we spoke to. But I think what I learned is that even in this very private sphere in our minds, this place we go to, to think about what might be, that even here, um, we're being limited in what feels appropriate or possible to think about. And for me, it was more evidence of the reach 
of the way in which our, our social addresses, as, as Jana put it, um, influence not just our actions, but they influence the way we think before we even take an action. So the, you know, the common thought of uh, Jiminy Cricket, when you reach upon, when you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. I think what we're showing here is that it makes quite a bit of difference who you are. Did you learn, Karen, and um, be interested in Janet's point of view on this as well, people learn to dream through other media from Hollywood, from Facebook, from YouTube, from TikTok, from newspapers, from television serials, where were people's dreams informed by the conventional media narratives of one kind or another? Yeah, one of the things we did in our project was to go out and analyze what are the messages about dreams that are out there in the broader culture? Where are people getting their ideas about what dreaming is, how you should do it, what's possible and what's not? And we found that there, of course, are, are many more optimistic and positive messages that come to us through movies, through stories about heroes, through books and so forth. Um, the idea that opportunity is boundless, that you ought to dream and, and dream big, that you should never give up on your dreams, uh, that you know, if you're optimistic, anything is possible. I, you know, I think back on that book several years ago, The Secret, where there was you know, this notion that if you just think it and wish it, it will come true. Um, and those lessons are out there. We also found some negative lessons. Uh, many people, uh, you know, linked on to a lesson about the deck being stacked uh, or that if you rise too far, you're going to end up disastrously falling and falling hard. And there too, we found that which of those lessons you embrace, the positive ones or the negative ones, had a lot to do with your background. Again, it was people in lower social classes, people from Latin backgrounds, people who were unemployed, who really embraced those negative lessons. Uh, and others who you might think would have a reason to think negatively about dreaming, people who were very sick, people who were aging, um, nevertheless held on tight to those very positive uh, cultural lessons about dreaming. That's quite encouraging. Let's bring um, let's bring Janet back. Janet, uh, as I suggested in the intro, was still only a week after July fourth. Many people see this, perhaps including myself, this period as a dark moment in American life. Mass shootings, the threat of inflation, more and more inequality, racial strife, and so on and so forth. Don't need me to tell you all this stuff. It sounds to me, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, that the the world you saw through people telling you their dreams was in some ways quite encouraging, that the state of America perhaps is not quite as dire as some people might think. Is that one conclusion you, you drew from your work? Oh, I think so. I think very much. We left uh, acknowledging, after reviewing all of these dreams and data, that, that uh, dreaming is a lifeblood for for individuals, it's it's keeps them going. Uh, it's it's a life force. I'm uh, I'm reminded of a article I read in in the Times soon after the war started in Ukraine, and the, a New York Times reporter was interviewing a soldier, and the soldier started asking the reporter about the Super Bowl, 
all sorts of questions about the Super Bowl. And he finally said after, you know, uh, getting the information, the scoop from the New York Times reporter, he said, that's one of my dreams. One day I'm going to get to the Super Bowl. And I just, you know, I was, I couldn't believe what I was reading that in, in the first oh, fog of war and the most horrendous realization, at least for me, that in this day and age, we were having one nation invade another and cause such chaos that this soldier was there uh, propping himself up, thinking about the future when he was going to make it to the Super Bowl. And I think we saw that too, quite honestly. Right. It's, a, it's a nice story. Um, uh, Karen Cirillo, do you share your co-author's optimism about the state of America and perhaps the state of the world from this book? Uh, you know, I, I, I certainly do. Um, several years ago, I wrote a book called Never Saw It Coming, which was devoted to people's inability to imagine worst case scenarios, even people whose job it is to imagine worst case scenarios. And I discovered then, as I've rediscovered now, that particularly in the United States, people are blindly optimistic and they cling to that feeling of blind optimism as almost a fuel to keep them going. They are I wonder if it's international. I mean, maybe your next project should be international. Whether whether Americans are certainly more positive than Europeans, French people, or English people. Yeah, we hope it, it will be a next project. Um, we're interested to see, you know, how Americans compare with Europeans, with Asians. You know, uh, what is what are the differences here? Are we uniquely optimistic and tied to dreams? Or is this something that is goes much beyond the U.S.? Karen, finally, uh, let's turn the tables. I'm not sure whether any of your interviewees did this, but what might have, what might be for you? What are your dreams? <laughs> well, it's interesting because this whole project emerged. I was in the car doing uh, errands before the Christmas holidays, and someone on a talk radio show posed the question: If you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? And I started, all these things started coming to my mind. Uh, I'd love to write a fictional novel. I'd love to write a Broadway play and maybe even be in it. Uh, I love animals. I'd love to train animals or maybe I'd love to own a little flower shop. So I, I found myself at no loss for coming up to, with things that are nothing like what I'm doing now, but things that I'd fantasized about at one time or another. And Janet, uh, what about you? What, what are your dreams? Well, Karen, when she, she uh, after that talk show, posed the question to me, and I said, hey, I, hands down, I want to be the next Oprah. And then I got a little more serious and said, oh, but if I could be a civil rights uh, attorney, that, yes, that would definitely be top of my list. Um, well, that's not that unrealistic. You're already a sociologist. You need to just go back to law school, Jane. <laughs> Well, I said that in front of my uh, two brothers who were lawyers, and they moaned when I suggested that that was uh, an important dream of mine. 